relationships a mess worth making. And we didn't finish uh, with pages 33 and 34, and so I want to finish those in just a bit, and I ask you to turn there. Let me, as quickly as I can, review what we've looked at in the first three weeks, and then that'll set us up for what we're going to uh, learn today. In the previous three weeks of our series on relationships, we sought to answer a, a different question each week. The very first week, we sought to answer the question, what do I bring to the table in my relationships? And I made the point that all of us bring what I call baggage to our relationships. And some of that baggage is good and some of it is not so good, but we all have it. We all bring baggage, bring things into uh, every relationship that we have. And we categorize that baggage into three areas. The first is nature, who I am by virtue of the family that I was, the parents that I have, the natural dispositions, propensities that I have by nature. So there is the category of nature, uh, who, who, who I am naturally. And then there's a second category of nurture, what I have observed, what I have learned, both in the home I was reared in, and the way they handled conflict, the way they spoke to each other, uh, the way they resolved or failed to resolve uh, issues. I picked all of that up as I was growing up. That's part of my nurture. My nurture also includes the things that I've read and the advice and counsel that I've received. All of that has affected me when I come to a point of establishing a particular relationship of whatever type. So what do I bring to the table? My nature, my nurture, and then a third thing is my desires. And a lot of times those desires are not conscious desires. Almost never are they written down somewhere. This is what I want out of this relationship. But every one of us brings desires, wants, and in turn then expectations to the relationship. And those desires and wants and expectations will be exposed. They will be revealed as they're not met. When they don't happen and you respond, as we all do, to them not happening, as we expected, as we wanted, as we desired, now you'll begin to see, I didn't even know that that's what I came into this relationship desiring. But apparently I do, because I'm ticked that it's not happening. And so we all come into relationships bringing those things to the table, baggage, nature, nurture, desires. What do I bring to the table? Then the second week, a couple of weeks ago, we sought to answer the question, what's the problem? Because we all see ourselves as naturally pretty good. You know, I know I got my flaws. Nobody's perfect. But as most people go, I've got it together pretty well. So by nature, I'm not so bad. And by nurture, you know, this is what my family, this is what my family taught me and you know, my old man, and sometimes people use that, would, would give me this advice and so forth. So I was reared in a home that, fill in the blank. You know, and I've just learned along the way, and so I've picked up bits and snatches. And we tend to have a favorable view of our nature and our nurture. And therefore, since I'm, I've got it together fairly well in terms of who I am, which is what both of those are, nature and nurture is just who I am. Since who I am is pretty good then whatever wants, desires, and expectations I have, that third category, are eminently reasonable. And so you are clearly unreasonable if you're not willing to meet those, and you don't see how reasonable they are. So what's the problem? The problem's not me. 
The problem is clearly outside of me. The problem would be you. And all the people in the world like you who tell you that it's okay to be like you. Because you need to be fulfilling the desires, expectations, wants that I brought into this. They're eminently reasonable. What's the problem? The problem is you. We think. But we saw that the Bible teaches just the opposite. That the problem is really residing inside of us. It's our hearts. We have met the enemy. He is us. And so we see a radical difference between the way the Bible approaches the issues of our relationships and the way we tend to approach them. We point outside, the Bible points inside. Last week we sought to answer then another question that flows out of that. Well then whose agenda is going to control this relationship? And the agenda is not, as I think one couple just revealed they thought (laughs) by their reaction, You know, I say whose agenda is going to end, they're both pointing out me, my agenda. Got it, chick? Got it, dude? But that's not what I'm talking about. It's not not whose agenda yours versus theirs. It's whose agenda yours versus God's. You see, because God has an agenda in this relationship. God has something that he wants you to get out of this relationship. He has something that he wants to accomplish in you and through you as a result of this relationship. And the question we all have to face then is, whose agenda is going to win out? Is it going to be mine or is it going to be God's? And we began to see in the material from last week's lesson then, in answering that question, whose agenda, we began to see that God has an agenda in the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians has six chapters, the first three of which we ask you to write down, and I gave you some things that God has has called us to, has done for us, things that we've received from God and things that we're called to do. And then in chapter 4, we see, chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians, we see how that plays out in, of all things, our relationships. The things that God has called us to do are played out in our relationships. And so as you go through Ephesians chapter 4, it starts right at the beginning. Live a life worthy of the calling that you've received, described in chapters 1 through 3. And how are you going to live that life worthily? In your relationships. Verse 3, Ephesians 4, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And then the whole chapter goes on talking about God's agenda for our relationships. And we left off at the bottom of page 33. Our struggle and God's agenda. At the end of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, Paul, who wrote Ephesians, lays out what relationships look like when God's purpose rules. He identifies seven tendencies of the sinful heart that are damaging to relationships, disruptive of God's purpose, and require persistent battling. Now, here are these seven tendencies. We're not going to go through them piece by piece because we're going to go to the next lesson. But I just want to point out a couple things about them. Note the word tendencies. It's an important word because as you look at all seven of those, not all seven of those are going to describe you all the time or me all the time. As you go through those, what I would suggest you do is find your particular tendency toward one or more of those. If you tend equally toward all of those, come and see me. We need immediate counsel. 
But most of us tend toward, emphasize, because of our nature and our nurture, two or three of these. And you'll see yourself in those. That's first. They are their tendencies that the sinful heart exposes in its relationships. You can identify what your tendencies are. Here's the other thing I want to point out. Nearly all of these seven explanations have the two words, I want, in them. Notice this. Bottom of page 33, the very first tendency towards self-indulgence. The explanation, my behavior in the relationship is driven by what? You see it there? I want. Toward deceit. I will manipulate the truth to get what? The tendency toward anger. I want control. You'll see the desire category that we talked about in the very first week. Nature, nurture, and desires. Expectations that we have. Top of page 34, the tendency toward selfishness. First two words are what? I want. Now the fifth one and the sixth one don't have the words I want, but it's implicit. Number five, the tendency toward unhelpful communication. Rather than using my speech to make you feel better and put you in a better position, I speak to make myself feel better. What do I want? I want to feel better. So I use my words to make that happen. Number six, the tendency toward division. I give in to the temptation to view you as an adversary rather than a companion in the struggle of the relationship. What do I want? I want to be victorious over you rather than over my sin. It's pretty good if I do say so. Here's what I want. I want to have victory over you. I want to beat you. You're the enemy. And so I have this tendency toward division, rather than beating, becoming victorious over the sin that's seeking control of my own heart. And then seven, the tendency toward unforgiving spirit, I want to make others pay for their wrongs against me. And then you have on that very page, contrasted, if you follow God's agenda versus this selfish, self-centered desire, expectation, want approach, to our relationships. If you follow a God-centered approach, you notice the bullet points listed at the bottom of page 34 and the profound difference that it makes. All right, with that, turn to page 39, if you would, in your notes. We sought to answer one question each week. The first week, as I said, was, what do I bring to the table? Second week was, what's the problem? Last week, whose agenda is going to rule? And now this week, the question we're going to seek to answer, beginning on page 39, is actually narrowing down the question from last week. The question last week was, whose agenda is going to rule? Here's today's question. Who will I worship in this relationship? God or myself? Last week's question was, who is going to, whose agenda is going to rule? Now we're going to focus that question further by answering this question. Who am I going to worship in this relationship, God or myself? You say, worship? I thought this was the Discovering God Hour. We had the worship service at 9.30. We worship for an hour and 15 minutes every Sunday. That's what worship is. No, it's not. Don't get thrown by the word worship. Worship is not an hour a week together on Sunday. Worship is our entire life. I was made for the worship 
of my Creator. And you were made for the worship of your Creator. And every circumstance that He allows into your life, including the relationships that He brings you into, are designed as an avenue for you and me to worship Him. And so the question now, now narrowly focused is, who am I going to worship? Is it going to be me or is it going to be God? Am I going to pursue my agenda or am I going to pursue God's agenda, which is really a worship question. All of life is worship. Adam and Eve, our first parents, were made to worship God. And he gave them his agenda and he expected them to fulfill and carry out his agenda. We know the sad story. They decided to pursue their own agenda. And you remember it was a matter of worship, don't you? Because the serpent says to Adam in Genesis chapter 3, did God really, says to Eve in Genesis 3, did God really say to you that you can't eat? Here's the reason, from this tree, here's the reason God said that to you. Quote, because he knows in the day you eat of it, you will become as who? God. Knowing good and evil. The first sin was a struggle over who will be worshipped. And that struggle for who will be worshipped in all of our circumstances, including our relationships, continues unabated to this day. It goes back even before Adam and Eve. Isaiah chapter 14 speaks of Lucifer and the first sin in the universe. Adam's sin was not the first sin in the universe. Adam's sin was the first human sin. But the first sin in the universe was Lucifer. And do you remember what Isaiah 14 says? Lucifer said, I will ascend the holy mountain. I will be like who? God. Tempts Adam and Eve with the same. They decide they want to be worshipped rather than God. And it continues to this day. Romans chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Romans 1. 22 through 25 says this. Verse 25 says that in our sin we quote, worship and serve created things rather than the creator. The essence of sin is to worship someone or something other than the true and living God and that someone can and often is me. So the question is, who will I worship in this relationship? All of life was made for worship. Sin is a matter of misplaced worship. And so that great theologian, Bob Dylan, is right. He had a song called, You Gotta Serve Somebody. And he's, he's absolutely right. The question is not, will you worship? The question is, who or what will you worship? And that's true in our relationships and in every area of our lives, friends. Let me just give you a few other proofs, and we'll look at the material, honest. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 21. 1 John 5.21. 1 John 5.21 is the last verse of the book of 1 John. Very last verse. It just has these words. My children, keep yourselves from idols. That's it. Book's over. It ends. My children, keep yourselves from idols. What are idols? 
persons or things that we worship other than the true and living God. My children, keep yourselves from idols. If you were to read the five chapters preceding that, you would go, why does it end that way? Because the word idol or idolatry or idolaters is not even used throughout those five chapters. So why does it end, my children, keep yourselves from idols? Here's why. Because idolatry has to do with what you love, with what you desire, with what you want. It actually has to do not with what you want, what you love, what you desire. It actually has to do with who you want, who you love, and who you desire. And if thought of that way, then 1 John is all about little children keeping yourselves from idols. You know why? Because it's all about what you love and who you love. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. Love not... Do you guys remember? Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. Because all that is in the world does not come from the Father, but from the world. What's in competition here? Love. Who I'm going to love. Always and at all times then, there is a battle in every area of my life, including and especially my relationships. Who is going to be worshipped in this relationship? God or myself? Jesus, Matthew 22. What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your soul. Do you all get the picture? This is a, a profoundly important question. Who is going to be worshipped then in my relationships? Is it going to be God? Or is it going to be someone other than God, including perhaps myself? And to answer that question, bottom of page 39. Two foundation stones have to be established. We can mistakenly think that our relationships are difficult because, like a child learning to walk, we simply lack the skills and experience not to fall. Here's what's being said there. What happens is a lot of people think, hey, the reason I've got problems in my relationships is I just don't know how. I need a book called 12 Ways to Communicate Better. I need, I need to know the skills. Now, there are some skills that can be helpful to learn. But the heart is the issue as we've tried to establish. The desires and the expectations are the issue. And just get it this way. Suppose you have somebody who gets angry in their relationships because they want, as we saw back on page 33 and 34, because they want to control. You have a controlling person whose heart is ruled by the desire to control. And now we put on a seminar that says here are 12 ways to communicate better. Because that guy and his wife think that that's the problem. We have some skill problems. We need to know how to communicate better. So we give them a seminar on how to communicate better. What's this controlling guy going to do with the new skills he now has? He's going to be better at controlling her. You see, because the heart has not changed at all. The desires have not changed. His ability to pursue his desires are what have changed. He's just better at it. So we've got to get to the heart of the issue. And we often make the mistake of thinking that what we need are first skills and experience. This may be true in part, the paragraph says, but the greater problem is the foundation. And the foundation is not what we do or say. It begins in the heart. Good relationships, last sentence, are always built on the foundation, these two foundation stones, identity and worship. Identity is simply this, top of page 40. Identity is who am I? 
And then this issue of worship is about who is God. Now, I will just say that actually both of them, identity and who I am and who God is, are both about worship. Because who I think I am can elevate me to a place that only belongs to God. So identity and worship are these two foundation stones. When we talk about identity, page 40, we're talking about how to define ourselves, talents, qualities, experiences, achievements, goals, beliefs, relationships, that we as individuals used to say, this is who I am. When we talk about worship, we're talking about the things we live for, desires, goals, treasures, purposes, and so on. These foundational issues of identity and worship are an inescapable part of our nature as human beings. What we believe and do about these things will shape the way we live with the people God has placed in our lives. We live out of a biblical sense of who we are and we rest on who God is. When we do that, we will be able to build healthy relationships. So everybody lives out of a sense of identity. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you're a child of God, that's, that's your first identity. And you don't take your circumstance as your identity. You don't live your life out of an identity that comes from your circumstance. Here's what I mean. If your husband leaves you, heaven forbid, if your spouse leaves you, your tendency is going to be to to say, this is my identity. I'm a single mother. Now, that's your demographic, but that's not your identity. Your identity is you're a child of the living God who is divorced. If you're somebody who has struggled with alcohol and you, and you have that struggle and you say, when people meet you and you say, how do you do? My name's Ken. Tell me about yourself. And you say, I'm an alcoholic. You've taken your circumstance as your identity. But you're a child of God who struggles with We have the tendency to make our circumstance our identity. And God is constantly calling us back to see who we are and then live out of who we truly are, not the false definition that we give to who we are, which is often our demographic, our circumstance. So let's remember who we are. Page 40. We all try to make sense out of life by telling ourselves who we are. We all have an I am this, therefore I can, or I can't. You know, the things that describe my identity will will tell me what I'm able to do. They'll also tell me what I'm not able to do. The identity we assign ourselves will always affect the way we respond to others. If I tell myself I'm smarter than you, it'll be difficult for me to listen to you when you give advice. If I tell myself I deserve your respect, I'll watch to see if you're giving me what I think I deserve. Now, it mentions Rob and Matt here, and that's a story... On back on page 39 that you don't have to you don't have to go to it's at the first page of the uh, the lesson you don't have to go to that now but I encourage you to read that but it's about two guys who went into business together and both of them came with their agenda unspoken agenda but that agenda revealed itself after they had to make a few decisions together and so I would encourage you to do what they say to read that story and then try to identify what it is that they are living out of in terms of their identity in that relationship Bottom of page 40, the Bible provides examples of people who forgot their identities and the wrong reactions that followed, but it also provides examples of people who remembered their true identities and their proper reactions. 
The examples below do this. Identify first what true identity each person replaced, the faulty identity that replaced it, and then third, the reaction and result from the false identity. So let's look at an example of this, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve eating from the fruit that God told them not to, to eat. They were acting out of some sense of identity, weren't they? But here's what they did. One, their true identity was to be dependent on God, living within the boundaries that he set for them. That's what they were supposed to do. That's the real identity. But they replaced that identity with number two. They made themselves independent of God and deserving of more than God gave them. The reaction then was to disobey. Because they had that identity, now they did something as a result of that identity. The reaction was disobey God, eat what was forbidden, resulting in sin and separation from God. We'll just look at a couple of these for sake of time to show you that this is the way it goes. Take a look at the next one, Sarah and Abraham, having a surrogate son. You all remember that story, right? God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through your seed. So therefore, you're going to have a seed. There's going to be a promised son who's going to pass on your name. It's a promise from Almighty God. But God's going to do it on his timing, not Abraham's and Sarah's. God delays. God delays. Abraham and Sarah take matters into their own hands. And Abraham sires a, a, a son through his handmaid, Hagar. Well, what happened with all of that? How did this identity reaction thing then take place? Here was their true identity. Their true identity was as children, chosen children of God and inheritors of his promise. That's the real identity. Children of God, inheritors of his promise. But what did, they, what did they do? They made themselves the fulfiller of the promise. Number two. The real identity was children of God who were to receive, inherit the promise from God. They replaced that with themselves being the fulfiller of the promise. And then third, the reaction was take control, resulting in conflict and hostility. Peter did this wrong. Here are some people who did it right, though. They had the right identity, and as a result, they did the right thing. Here's Moses, bottom of page 41. He remembered his identity. He was God's instrument. And he was able to lead the people out of Egypt into the promised land. Or page 42, David facing Goliath. He remembered he was God's servant. He remembered that God was on his side, so he was able to face Goliath and defeat him. Paul and Silas in prison. Now, suppose you were, instead of sitting in this hot room, anybody else warm? I'm warm. Instead of sitting in this warm, otherwise comfortable room, though, pretend it's comfortable. Instead of being here, suppose you were in, under house arrest, with a Roman guard chained to your arm, for doing nothing other than preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And you had an appointment to see Caesar in which you were sure he was going to give you the sentence of death. What's your identity now? Huh. This always happens. You know, all I'm trying to do is the right thing and then stuff like, and I'm in jail for it. And I am down and depressed and I am ticked. I'm ticked at the Romans. I'm ticked at the church. Why couldn't somebody protect me? Why can't there be other people out here helping me, for heaven's sake? Practically out here on my own. And I'm mad at God. My identity is poor me who deserves better. Or you could be like Paul, who says, I'm an ambassador for Jesus Christ. 
And even though there's a chain on my arm as I dictate this letter to the Philippians, the person who's really chained is the whole palace guard who has to listen to me preach to them every week. He's living out of a sense of identity and has a totally different approach to it. And so then this Paul in the last chapter of that book, while he's chained to that Roman guard, can say, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in sickness or in health, whatever the situation, I've learned how to be content. And then he says famously in verse 13 of Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. See, that's how Moses was able to do what he did. That's how David was able to do what he did. That's how Paul was able to do what he did. That's how you are able in the relationships in which God has placed you to do what God designs for you because you remember who you are. And you don't replace your true identity with this false identity that leads to ungodly reactions in our relationships. Bottom of page 42, we tell ourselves, who we tell ourselves we are has quite a powerful impact on the way we deal with the big and small issues. Where we find our identity will have everything to do with how we respond to the difficult work of relationships. Either we get our identity vertically, that is, out of our sense of who God is and who he has made us in Christ, or we'll seek to get our identity horizontally this way, out of our circumstances, our relationships and our successes or failures. Much of the disappointment and heartache that we experience is the result of finding our identity in others and attempting to get from relationships what we already have in Christ. Wow. I want and I expect you in this horizontal human relationship to provide these things for me when in fact I have everything I need in Jesus Christ. That's my identity. And if you fail to uphold your responsibility before God, I am still a child of the living God and an ambassador for Him and an heir of the promises of God and all of these marvelous things that God tells every last one of them are all true of me no matter what anybody else does. Much of the heartache then is from trying to get from people what I already have in Jesus. Bottom of page 42, the guy, the, Paul Tripp says, in almost 30 years of counseling, I've talked with countless women in difficult marriages who said, all I ever wanted was for my husband to make me happy. And he says, I thought, that boy's cooked. And of course you could reverse it. Husband's looking for, this is what I want from my wife. And this is what I expect from my wife. And if it's not there, notice the sentence in that next paragraph. No human being was ever meant to be the source of personal joy and commitment for, contentment for somebody else. So our identity first. Second, remembering who God is. Bottom of page 43. Just as we all look for identity, we, all look, we also are all worshipers. But we're not talking about worship as a formal religious activity, but rather as an identity. What it is that controls our hearts. Our hearts are always under the control of something, and whatever controls our hearts controls our behavior. Matthew 6, 19 through 24, Jesus says, Where your treasure is, there will your... You guys remember? There will your heart be also. And here's what treasure is. You might write it down in the margin. Treasure is assigned value. That's why we can say one's man, one man's trash is another man's treasure, right? Because it's assigned value. It's value you assign to it. So your, your treasure could be anyone or anything. It's the value that you assign to that. And so love the Lord your God. Well, if you, if you assign ultimate value to that, 
In terms of your behavior, if I, if I assign ultimate value to pleasing God, glorifying Him, becoming more like Him, then the relationship is not what's going to determine how I behave. The value, the assigned value that I place upon Him and glorifying Him and obeying Him is going to determine my behavior. And so, as we think about not only who we are but who God is, we need to think about who God is in three ways, beginning on page 44. The first one is we need to think of God and worship God, not ourselves or anyone else, as first creator. Creator. Psalm 139 is listed there, and you all know Psalm 139 says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So, (laughs) if God is the creator who fearfully and wonderfully makes, how did he mess up so bad with you? Why do you look the way you do? Why do you talk incessantly the way you do? Why do you... So you can see how this starts to affect my relationships. Do I worship God as the creator? God has made people differently. And yet I come to the relationship and I say, you know, I could do a better job of creating these people than you did, God. I mean, here's exhibit A. I'm stuck with exhibit A. And I could go down every one of the physical and emotional flaws that that person has. And I'm with it all of the time. And and you're supposed to be the creator. We don't say this to God. This is just what's going on in our hearts. You're supposed to be the creator. I could do a better job of this, actually. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to embark on a lifetime of recreating that person in whose image. And when we do that, make no mistake, it's a matter of worship. Who are we going to worship in this relationship? Are we going to see God as the sovereign creator who knows what he's doing or not? Bottom of page 44. Although most of us have affirmed God's the creator of all things, it's quite easy. Now notice this, to worship him as creator on Sunday and curse his work during the week. Worship him as creator on Sunday. But then during the week, curse what he created. This person. This husband, this wife, these kids, this boss. And we embark on trying to recreate them in our own image. Last paragraph on page 44. So we have to worship God as creator. Page 45, here's the second way we have to worship God. As sovereign, as sovereign. Acts chapter 17 and verse 26, here's what it says. It's listed there, here's what it says. It says that God, the sovereign God who made all things, and he is not worshipped in temples made by hands as though he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Then verse 26 says this. It says, And he has determined the times for those people to live and the exact places where they would dwell. That's a sovereign God, isn't it? But am I going to worship God as sovereign? Because as I look at the baggage that this person brought into the relationship, I don't think God was sovereign in that. He missed a few steps on that. Or as I look at the baggage that he sovereignly bestowed upon me in the nurture that I had and the nature that I have, I think he missed it somehow. And the fact of the matter is the sovereign God did not miss any of that. The baggage that you bring into that relationship, your nature and your nurture, a sovereign God has orchestrated the steps of your life and the steps of the life of the one with whom you have the relationship. And then the third way we have to worship God is on page 46. We worship God as Savior. And here's all that means. 
If you're going to worship God rather than worshiping yourself or someone else, it means this. You will never attempt to be a small Messiah in the life of someone else. A mini, M-I-N-I, Messiah in the life of somebody else. Because you're not their Savior. He is. You ultimately cannot change them. He can. He's their Savior. You can get off of that merry-go-round that you've been on for years of trying to change this other person into your own image. If you'll stop worshiping yourself and begin worshiping God, the God who created, the God who sovereignly controlled, and the God who is the Savior of that person with whom you have relationship. Friends, that will radically change your agenda. If you begin to think about your identity, not found out in somebody else, found in Christ. And if you'll radically change your, reorient, your orientation, reorienting it to say, I'm going to worship God rather than worship myself or someone else in this relationship. We discuss what we're talking about on Sunday mornings, on Sunday nights. And tonight, we're going to be meeting at various homes, call them community groups, and then we discuss the application of this stuff, okay? So for those of you that are not part of those, if you would like further discussion about that and interaction with folks about it, I'd encourage you to be a part of a, a community group on the way out. If you'd like that, let me know, and I can tell you how to go about that. All right, let's pray. We'll be done. Father, we thank you for this blessed time with these blessed folks. I thank you for these dear, dear folks who care enough about their relationships, that they're here, that they're, that they're thinking, that they're engaging their minds, and I trust hearts on the truth that you've given us from your word. I pray, Lord, that this, that this structure of your truth will be helpful to your people. As we go this week, help us, Lord, to think in terms of our real identity, not the false identity that we've replaced it with. Help us, Lord, to think always and transact every moment of every day with the true and living God that we've been called to worship. Help us, Lord, not to make ourselves the creator. Help us not to make ourselves the sovereign, to make ourselves anyone's savior, but to trust you completely as the one true creator, sovereign, and savior. Go with us this week, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.